Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. Uh, so today I'm delighted to be uh, joined again by, by a fellow Brit, and he's not too far away from me, another guy uh, slightly northeast, I think maybe 60 miles, would you say, from yeah, 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 something yeah. Like that. 60 miles northeast of me is, is Terry. Terry, welcome to the show. Um, could you introduce yourself to the... Uh, Certainly, Simon. Um, obviously, Terry Fitzpatrick, um, currently director of ARC Adoption Northeast and, and founder of that organisation. Worked for over 40 years in, in social work, um, coming up to 41 shortly, and worked for local authority for many, many years. Started in the voluntary sector, working in residential care, um, and then worked for many, many years for local authority within the region. Um, but then in 2013, had the opportunity through a DFE grant system to set up a voluntary adoption agency uh, and kind of the rest's history, really. Uh, had to bid for a grant at that time, never believing you would be successful, but lo and behold, I was. Um, and so you began the story of, of ARC, developing ARC as an adoption agency within the Northeast region. So we're based in Sunderland, um, but we have a reach across the whole of the northern region. Right. currently so that's a little potted history yeah and just uh, just for our um uh, listeners outside of the uk uh, so the dfe is the department for education so this is that's, the government that's department correct for, yes yeah for uh, yes. for education and schools uh, and yeah 2013 so um what does that what does that flexibility of running this organization help you do that wasn't possible within local authorities what because i guess that was part of was that the reason for you setting up uh, for, for applying for this grant was it but was it more freedom was it you know what what was it that led you to set it up well we, we've been fairly successful as a team within the local authority if you measure success in terms of ability to recruit families and to uh, place a, a number of children and for a small local authority we were place in a larger number than many of our um, counterparts you know elsewhere within the region so um, things were healthy from that point of view but like everybody in local government we were starting to feel the effects of um, the cuts that were being made um, and it felt very much as though we were standing still as a as an, a service really um, because we were doing well we weren't seen as a priority for support which is a sad irony often in local government that if you you're doing badly and, and if inspection measures that to be the case, then often resources are ploughed into to rectify that problem. And, and I get that. I understand that. But when you're actually doing well, although there are plaudits at the time, um, you are often left to your own devices, which one hand gives you freedom. But on the other hand, it means you can stand still. And the government of the day were concerned about adoption, um, about the low number of adopters coming into the system, at that time, um, outweighed um, you know five times with the number of children that needed to play, be placed for adoption. So it was a big a big concern. Um, so there were a number of initiatives being thought of at that time to try and rectify that problem. Um, one of them was to apply resources into local authorities as well. Um, but we were seeing very little of that as a, as a team because of the need for cuts elsewhere. So. Um, it just it was frustrating, should we say. And then this opportunity came along to um, consider setting up a, an adoption agency. The team that I had with me at the time were a very experienced team, although small in number. So you knew that a number of people, half a dozen people, could actually make a go of this and probably recruit the number of families that the government were hoping that any agency would would recruit. And that was just based on past performance, really. So um, you were able to have that flexibility and freedom to determine the number of people you wanted in the team, the expertise that you were looking for, the range of uh, professionals that you wanted to engage with. Um, and then once established as an agency, that's where the greater freedoms really came to the fore. You know, we would have ideas um, not being arrogant to believe that we would always get it right, um, but at least we had various ideas about how we could improve things across the piece, really, improve things for birth families, for adoptees, for adopters, and notably the children who were in the care system that we were going to work with. And 
we would try something and perhaps if it wasn't working, we would just stop and try something different without having to go through bureaucratic exercises every time. We could be quick and lean in, in our thinking really and, 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 and make change available very quickly as well. And that was a delight really to be able to work in, in that way. You were privileged that a lot of experienced people came on board when we developed ARC. And we started with, with eight practitioners, which included family support workers, social workers, people who would work with birth parents, people who had expertise in life story work. Um, all of the things that you felt were always on the back burner when you worked in a local authority. Not, not always, but I think there were the, the areas that would tend to go if cuts were needing to be made, etc. So we set out to, to try and formulate the best service that we could within the, the parameters that we had and the funding that we had. But obviously as a new agency, you, you, you're self-funding and beyond the grant to set up. And so you, you have to start and develop a customer base. You have to have a product. And now a product was the recruitment of adoptive families. Um, and then you have to find your way in a market that has other people doing the same. Um, in the Northeast, there, there aren't many voluntary adoption agencies. Um, there are th three others. Um, and I include sort of Cumbria in, in that uh, geography. But um, nonetheless, we were known within the region because of the level, length of time we'd all worked in the adoption field. Um, and that really helped us to get established. So you had fellow practitioners around the region who might be looking for families and not be able to recruit their own resources in the number they needed, who had an awareness of who we were and where we were and so on. The big question was, how would we attract the general public who wouldn't know us from, from Adam? But again, the flexibility we had enabled us to set up a marketing team, which we weren't having to rely on the generic marketing services that local authorities have. We could have it as a bespoke service to ourselves. And it was a learning curve for me, you know, having to use social media to advertise, you know, often thinking, well, what on earth do we need to go down that route for? But you know, you now re realize fully the, the benefits of that. Having a very good website, you know, is important. Um, having unique reference points, whether it's logos, colors you use and so on, all important factors in, in drawing people's attention to our existence, which again, in local authority days, you didn't have to think about, about these things. And many were, were corporate colors and, and so on. You had no specific identity. So all of these things we realized became important. Um, and we've grown exponentially really since the days we were registered with Ofsted, who are the body that register voluntary adoption agencies. And we had to undergo registration before we could, could function. So 2013, we were awarded the grant and until um, April, April 14, 2014, we were spending time setting up recruitment, et cetera, people serving notices on the current employment. So we couldn't actually operate until we had that Ofsted green light. Um, and there were eight at that time when we started. There are now 22 of us working there. So seven and a half, seven, three quarter years later, um, there are 22 people there. And one of the things we realized, we talked about flexibility. One of the things we realized really was that, yes, you need to recruit the families. And there are certainly the children out there, although the numbers have fallen from the heady days when we first set up when there was a big concern about there being more children requiring adoption than there were adopters. It swung around the pendulum to give the opposite result now, where there are more adopters than there are children with a plan of adoption. But nonetheless, we didn't want to replicate what local authorities were doing. We wanted to specialise in finding families who could take perhaps siblings, slightly older children. And in this country, if you're over the age of four, you're deemed difficult to place these days, which is a real tragedy. But Nonetheless, we would, would highlight that and try and recruit families who could take slightly older children, school-age children, children who um, had disabilities, children who perhaps had behavioural issues and so on. So with, that we wouldn't compete with the local authorities, we would be there to, to support them and to complement and supplement the work that they do. Um, so, that, so that was our hope that we could do that. And we very quickly realised that it isn't sufficient to go out and find the families and hand them over to a local authority responsible for a child and for the placement just to go off into the sunset, that we need to have robust support services there to support every family at whatever level they require that support. 
obviously the hope is that the majority of families just see it as an insurance policy, that whatever support strategies you have are there should they be needed in the future rather than needed on a daily basis. But there are families who need us on a daily basis. And that isn't a failing, that, that's indicative really of the complexity of some of the children that we place for adoption. Adoption is just one of a number of needs that a child from the care system might have. Um, all the other needs need to be met too. And often in the past, you would find the children placed for adoption, it was seen as a relief that you'd found the family and it was sufficient just to then let go and let the family get on with things where we know clearly that isn't the case in, in many situations. And so the next uh, development for ARC was to consider, rather than continuing to recruit more social workers to do assessments of families, that we should develop our support services. Um, so in the team, we had people who had expertise in life story work. We had people who had many years experience of working with birth families. Um, but what we didn't have were therapeutically trained social workers. So we decided to develop a therapeutic support team. So financially, it was a bit of a gamble because our income is generated from us being able to offer families to local authorities who pay for those services. So there's a quarter of placements we need to make every year in order to survive as an organization. Um, but once we got to a situation where we were comfortably able to meet that that level, that quota, you could then turn to think about, right, it's time now to, to invest in the team, but to invest by developing a support team. So that that is what we did. And uh, so that team um, is now one of the mainstays of our organisation. It's one of the key reasons why people come to us when we recruit families. Um, it's also one of the key reasons why local authorities make placements with us, because they know that 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 is there. Yeah. So um, it, it's it, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, the, buried in there uh, was a very uh, a, a very vital point, I think, for for all of us, right? In whatever we're doing, when we're talking about our parenting, whether we're talking about our relationships um, with our uh, with our partners whether we're just talking about life in general you were talking you're you're talking about being nimble nimble enough to change something when it's not working mm. and uh, I, and i guess we're all kind of like we're all creatures we're creatures of habit so me too right walking the dog in the morning swimming podcasting you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a creature of habit and we yeah. kind of, we, sometimes we don't change our approach sufficiently quickly, mm -hmm. or I don't anyway, mm -hmm. you know, I, st I, 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 um, I, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying something new. So uh, I, I guess what I'm I get, getting at here is if the listeners to have a, a look at if they're, if, they're, if they're facing a particular challenge with their uh, adopted child. Is it time to try something new? Is it time to try like, a new therapist? Is it time to try some, uh, some different approach to life story work? Is it time to try to do contact in a different way? Mm -hmm. Is it time to try and do something? Is it time to 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 uh, to, to do something different? Mm -hmm. um, because if we we until we get a different and then, until we try something new, we ain't going to get a different result. I mean, the, the, Einstein says it far more. Um, uh, Einstein says it far more um, succinctly than me. Something like you know trying trying to get a different result. I can't remember what the quote, mm -hmm. the quote is. Um, we can't. We, we, we may need to do something we, we may need to do something do, uh, differently mm -hmm. uh, with our adopted child so with that kind of back, with that kind of backdrop and mm -hmm. kind of your your years uh, experience in this area what is it that you'd like to share to uh, encourage people adopted parents listening 
in terms of perhaps uh, something something different that they could do, yeah. or or prob or maybe you could look at it from a perspective of uh, traps that adopted parents fall into, mm. and that you've seen them fall in into mm. with your perspective, but you know they don't see. What was it that you'd like to share from your experience to help? our adoptive listeners, adoptive parents listening with their kids? It's it's very difficult to try something new when you're in the middle of a crisis because you might realise that what you're trying isn't working, but your fear of stepping out to do something different and taking that time to learn whatever it might be, what technique, etc., you could use, is frightening as well. And no matter what the problem we face in society generally, that is the case. We're so, so anxious about getting from A to B and we haven't got time to get off the train to try a different mode of transport, so to speak. So I think it, it's a similar approach with, with adoption. The, one of the sad things, I think, over the years that I've worked in adoption is that people in the main would come to you when the wheels come off. And that's it's really difficult then to go in with new ideas. I mean, sometimes people will welcome that and will try things. Um, but they're not in a confident space really to, to, to do that. The firefighting really, and, and um, they know that things are so difficult and they have a feeling of guilt that they might not be able to go on. Um, so it's almost like a last ditch attempt that would come to agencies such as ourselves or local authorities to ask for help. Fearful that there's a stigma in doing so, fearful that they've seemed to be fail, failing for having done so. So it, it's a long-term solution this in a way i mean some families may be able to respond very quickly to new ideas the majority have to take on a journey i think so that they feel confident to do that that they can trust in the likes of ourselves as agencies um i think a lot of work in adoption is based on relationship and that go back to the early days of a family being assessed or even further back to when they decide which agency they might wish to to be approved by good reaction to that is often the way forward that people see and feel an agency and think that's the one I feel I could trust because you're reliant upon that agency to go out and find this child, these children for them. It's an area where most people are in control of their lives to an extent, but this is an area where you're reliant upon somebody else to go out and find that child. So if that relationship develops, then you've got a much better chance of actually trusting each other when things aren't going quite so well. And I've mentioned to you before, Simon, that one of the things at ARC that we try to do is have lots of informal activities um, under the guise of them being events for children, whether it be summer activities of camping, um, going to visit farms, um, a variety of things along those lines. And yes, it's a great day out for the children, but one of the real intentions behind it is that it's an informal opportunity for a worker to be there on hand for any family, any any adopter who just wants to take them to one side and just offload a little bit, where it's done in a very low key way, it, it's it's not seen as a, having to make an appointment, um, and and it allows people to feel comfortable with drawn upon the, the support from from the workers in question. And so, when there are more difficult and more complex problems to address, they're in a much more confident position to pick up the phone or send that email. Um, and make us aware that they, they do need that help without feeling any stigma attached to it. So it, relationships are important in, in, in developing that. But I think, you know, you're quite right in saying that things do need to change often. And, you know, we, we all get into our comfort zone. And I've already said I've worked for 40 years in, in, in social work and, and 30 plus, 35 plus in, in adoption. And there are a number of people who stay in adoption field for, for many, many years. Um, it, it has less of a turnover rate than many other areas in, in social work because it's quite a privileged area to work in. But equally, what can go hand in hand with that is that we can become entrenched in our way of working as well and, and not move forward. You know, would we have entered into podcasts years ago? Would we have been using uh, social media? Would we be using uh, virtual means of existing. We've had to, the pandemic's forced us to do these things. So there's been dramatic change in the adoption service, certainly in the last year. 
and there are agencies who began to change some time ago to realize that it's pointless perpetuating things. We need to provide different resources for, for family. Um, access, we have a, a therapeutic support team that includes a, a psychologist and a counselor. It's interesting that the counselor's work has been of most value probably at the point when families are going through the assessment process, because you find that if it's a partnership, then two people might be on different pages. Fearful of sharing that with a partner for seem to be letting them down and, and so on. And yet the use of a counsellor to just talk that through, knowing that it's confidential and so on, um, has helped them get through that point and move forward and then move forward together and become very successful adopters. Um, but maybe a luxury in terms of a resource to have, but it's one that we felt was essential really to yeah. get people on the same page. So I think trust's important to allow people to actually consider new things. You have to have new things on offer. And so you need people who can be forward thinking, people who can flex and so on. Um, but ultimately, you, you need to be able to prove that um, these different ways of working, these different techniques will reap a dividend as well. You know, So um, research is important that we share findings on these things with, with our adopters, which again would build a conference to give things, things a go having a range of practitioners available so that it's not just one size fits all. So we have a counselor, we have a, a psychologist, we have family support workers, we have therapeutically trained life story workers. So there's a range of people. You don't have to sign up to see everyone, um, but you, you, you're offering a, a range of services there. And the other thing I think is that it all needs to be joined up as well. You know that, um, it's important, it's very important that we meet the needs of the children, obviously, that's our reason for being. It's very important that we're there um, when needed and can be responsive to adopt the families, either before they go in crisis, into crisis if possible, but certainly when they are in crisis. But it's also important that we meet the needs of birth family as well. And so, again, we're quite privileged as an organisation to be able to see that and, and provide services for everybody within the adoption arena or adoption triangle, as we used to say. So believing that each part is as important as the other, really, to make this work for children. So you mentioned contact and so on, and we'll perhaps come on to that later, but um, it's as important to be working with birth family to get them on board with contact as it is to be working with the children and, and the adopters as well. Otherwise, it becomes a meaningless exercise, really, in many ways. Yeah. So if, if I can turn, if I could turn this round to um, some suggestions then for the for the listeners, would be um, if if you're you know don't don't wait till it's don't wait till yeah. it's too late. Don't wait till the wheels are coming off, and and build 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 your relationships now. Make make time to build the relationships now. So that you've got that support, even if things are going well, yeah. um, and I, I, it, and as I'm saying this, I'm thinking like human. This isn't this isn't uh, this isn't our culture, is it? Here in the West, we don't yeah. we we are not um, uh, yeah proactive is a, is is an overused word, but we're not we're far more reactive than we are proactive as as a society. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the question is, you know, like before I came into this, um, before I came into this space, uh, the adoption space, I was doing work with uh, mainly with kids in in uh, in what we call primary schools, what they call elementary schools in the in the US. Uh, and I and I did a lot of work in the the bullying area, and uh, I wanted to help parents build. If their kid was being bullied, I help, I wanted to help train them how to make their child more resilient, make them bully-proof. Mm. And I wanted to work with them to stop the bullying <coughs> happening. And nobody wanted the service. Mm. They they wanted they 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 just it, it, it wasn't it, it just wasn't up because people were not making time to be yeah. proactive. Mm. And and then this morning I got an email out of the blue, given I've not been in this space for a, a, a while, saying I, I want 
I, I, I can't, um, have you got a book? What can I do in, in case my child is bullied in the future? And I thought, that's one proactive parent, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and doesn't, you know, where, where am I, you know, where am I um, reactive rather than proactive? How can I be more uh, proactive? So that's a question really for the listener. How can you be more proactive? What can you, what can you, just a, uh, you know, a, a thing to, to think through maybe. And you've also, you know, you, you, you're alluding to a, a range of different options from the, from therapy to life story work. And there are many more mm. go out and do go, go out and, you know, have, have a look at what's available. Mm-hmm. Talk to, talk to people that you talk to people, other adoptive parents that, you know, talk to the people that helped you with your, um, with your, uh, uh, adoption mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, be, be exploring different things that you could do mm-hmm. to help your child, um, to help your child thrive. And, uh, if you listen to podcasts, yeah. You're looking, you're looking, you're looking for a solution. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't and I, I think wait. you're absolutely right, Simon, that, you know, be proactive um, as much as you can or seek advice about where you need to be proactive and so on. But I think agencies also need to be proactive and, and to change in the way that they prepare people as well. And if you look at, we mentioned contact, and I'm not going to go into detail about contact here, but just as a concept, it's far different to what it was many years ago. Many years ago, it, it didn't exist. You know, it was seen as once the child is adopted, that's severing of ties. Then, you know, became the an awakening of people to realise that it was important for the emotional stability of all concerned to, to enter into some level of contact. But for most people coming into the adoption arena as prospective adopters, it's an alien concept because as human beings, we're rescuers you know, with altruism comes to the fore and we believe that, well, that's your past, you're with us now, it's the present and the future that counts. And so you put a, a lid on the box that's the, the past. And we try to educate people to believe that that isn't the way to do it because all you're doing is storing up a box of problems there by putting the lid on and that you need to grow forward together, being comfortable about contact, being a champion for contact. And, and so... We're now in a position, I think, over time to have give that, given that message so many times now to adopters. And we're also beneficiaries of the fact that we have some great people who can come along and share their stories on our training. We have um, adoptees, you have birth parents, as well as experienced adopters. And they help to dispel many of the myths, far more so than a social worker such as myself can do, albeit we might be able to tell the same story, but they've lived it. And, and it's much more powerful, really. And so you, you're now bringing up a, um, a generation of adopters who understand that contact's important and understand if they want to adopt successfully, then adoption with contact will have to be considered. Now, we accept and acknowledge that in every case, it might not be right. It might be unsafe. But in the majority of cases, it is right. And what the level is, is there to be determined. But you now have a a generation of adopters who understand why we talk about contact being important and and make that bigger shift, I think, through the preparation training. Um, And we're blessed, certainly in our agency, to have some wonderful people who share their experiences. And and that really helps to to cement this concept. Um, So I think local authorities have got and, you know, all adoption agencies have got a responsibility to try and um, flex and, and make time to give those messages to to people and to take people on a journey not just expect people to change overnight change through experience through hearing other people's experiences and so on is is a much more powerful and positive way of actually getting people on board with things so i think it's the same with any any departure from what people believe to be the norm whether it's to seek support engage in contact you've got to take people on a journey to believe that, that that is the way to go. So in terms of a, a selling point, adoption agencies could say to prospective adopters from now on in, um, if you wish to adopt, you'll have to consider how you'll manage contact and we'll help you consider that. And you might need to consider equally engaging in a range of supports along the way to make things work and to consolidate things. Um, it might 
or might, you know, it may or might not happen, but we need to know that what's out there and so on. So, so you're taking people on a journey from, from day one, rather than pussyfooting around that and, and saying, oh no, it, you know, it will be all okay. You just go off into the sunset and everything will be hunky dory. But if it's not come back and tell us, we've, we've got to, we've got to take people with us really with this. And I, I think that's the responsibility agencies have, but you're absolutely right. I mean, for those who are adoptive parents, it's just been open to, to considering that there are other ways of doing things rather than remaining in the dark and, and remaining fearful um, of, what, of what seems to be happening within you, your family. Yeah. I often, um, because I'm getting this, having these conversations with people from all over the world, you know, um, States, Canada, UK, New Zealand, Australia, um, Denmark, mm. uh, you know, um, South Africa. Uh, what I'm getting is the idea that um, uh, that, that uh, there's a lot of uh, larger agencies are like more and, and public sector uh, public sector organisations who are like oil tankers, right? And you you seem to be a, a, a you you guys seem to be a bit more like a speedboat. Um, uh, uh, you know, you can flex and change. And, and and then the ultimate is that you know as as a um, a single parent adopter or a couple you know that have adopted, mm. you've got way more flexibility than these you know monolithic organisations have got, and and you've got with we've we've now got the obviously we've now got the web the the options out there mm. for uh, for parents who want to be proactive uh are are huge you've got it all, it, it all, all it's all that it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's all that um the podcast that you're listening to there the, the are many other great podcasts that there are out there the people in this space the email contact that you can have um terry's you know we're going to put a link into terry's organization in the in in, in the show notes show notes there's no need um there's there's no need to to, to struggle anymore um a, a, a friend of mine well not a friend of mine a, a, a more like an acquaintance she she's just started a, a problem solving agency right a problem solving agency so yeah. uh, and it's a it's on a facebook group you go on with a problem and mm-hmm. she'll try and help you to, to to figure the problem out or if she can't she come back on the following week mm-hmm. we've got this we've we've got this wealth of uh, uh, stuff out there um wealth of a uh, uh, wealth of opportunities wealth of options out there mm. let's go and explore them there's no there's no need to be there's no need to be struggling uh, with 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 uh, with what's going on um i recorded a, a episode yesterday with a guy called brian post and he just said but come on the website all, all the all the videos there you know as an adopted guy who's um mm. uh, been in this like, like you field a long time all the stuff's out there it, mm. it, it it's all that there's there's no need to There's no need to to struggle anymore. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. The, the the flexibility here and mm-hmm. and but go with your gut feel. Um, yeah. I, I was talking to another adopter last week, and she said, "Oh, uh, she came up with this phrase where, which I thought was uh, uh, fantastic. She called it trauma dumping. Right? There's a lot of groups on Facebook. We talk about mm-hmm. this a lot on this podcast, where people are just trauma dumping, and it's all darkness, and there's no light." Mm-hmm. don't go anywhere near those go mm-hmm. go the social media world is very polarizing mm-hmm. and it's very dark and it's very angry mm-hmm. you want to be reaching out to real world mm-hmm. r- real people organizations mm-hmm. like um like terry's and and and, and real face to face stuff where you're going to get yeah you're going to get the darkness but you're going to get the light and you're going to get the stories and you're going to see some the stories of of, of change so that kind of leads me on to another uh, question that popped into my head. What what you talked about? I think you used the word cementing, but I, I was as you were talking, uh, I wrote I wrote that down a question for you, uh, Terry, which is which which are the messages that don't land when 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 you're talking about adoptive uh, with adoptive parents? What are what are the messages that don't land? What are so what are some of the? I think yeah. 
probably one of the most apparent areas that it's difficult to get messages or information to land is right at the beginning of a a placement, um, even pre-placement, the information comes through because people have been striving for years to, to have a family and whatever means have been tried and you know, without you know, success or varying success and the land with adoption as a means of, of, of moving forward to, to care for a child and have a family. So to, to be validated and be approved as an adopter is a major milestone for people. But even more exciting is obviously to get to the point where there's a potential link out there. And I think for many people, it, it's that they're so excited about having achieved that and to be in that position that, that there can be in danger at times of minimising the information that's laid out before them about the particular child. Because, yes, all of the children on referral need a family from somewhere, but the trick and the, and the role of, of workers such as ourselves and, and authority workers is to try and make sure it's the right match and it's the right link. Now, you know, it's the wisdom of Solomon to be able to do these things, but I think, you know, people are or should be armed with as much information as possible and to be helped and guided through what that information actually means. And that doesn't always happen because you have local authority workers who are desperate to get the child placed, the tried and tried for months and months suddenly you have a family coming over the hill or saying hands up we'll do it and and they forget the enormity of the task that they've had as well it's just eureka we've found a family um and everything's invested on in, in going full steam ahead and bringing this child and family together to, to 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 move forward as one and and yes that that's the way it has to be planned but i think along the way people can minimize or forget what the backstory often is. So the picture that families get of a child might not be as that child actually is. And, and I think, yes, we, we don't want children to languish in the care system, but there are a fear at times that we move too fast as well. There needs to be time for people to actually understand who this child is. But maybe that needs to be re-explored as well at the time that a child is about to move to a family because you have a child who's coming from foster care and can be well cared for in foster care, but the difficulties and behaviours that you see in an adopted families might not have manifested in that environment because you've got experienced people who are maybe looking after three and four children. And I don't mean that a child's neglected, but a child can be lost in that, that arena and, and the move suddenly to goldfish bowl scenario being with an adopted family and there seemed to be a different child from what the family have read about and so on. So I think um, it's been prepared there to, to ask the questions and to ask for support, ask for time to ensure that it is the right, the right link. Um, one of the things we try to do at ARC, and I know other agencies will do as well, is that we use our psychologists to, to, um, to look at what the information is telling us about this child. Um, so that we can make an informed decision about whether we feel our family have what it takes to be able to care for this child or that this child in question will be manageable for this family and right for this family and so on. And to do it with somebody who's independent, as it were, of that, and is just purely looking at the information and analysing that, to be able to decide whether we should go forward or, or not with a potential match. Without that, you're in danger of just because you've, so you're potentially going to solve a problem. You just rush straight forward with it, you know. So um, that that's something that we've learned, you know, over time that people should take that time to, to really get to know what the information is telling them about a child. Because when you don't do that, months and maybe years down the line, some of these issues become apparent that would have been there, would have been there to the right people at that very early stage. But, but that opportunity gets lost and, and then suddenly people are invested, they've adopted, they feel there's no way out of the situation, they've got to try and deal with it. But they're dealing with something really complex that could have been predicted much earlier. I've possibly gone off piece there a little bit, Simon, but... Um, Important stuff. Yeah. You, you, uh, before we started recording, you, you, you mentioned that there was a... Uh, on a completely different subject, obviously it's all mm -hmm. adoption related, but... You, you mentioned this um, a, a slight. You, you mentioned um, 
something about fetal alcohol uh, syndrome and the fact that uh, people, uh, professionals are reluctant to give this diagnosis because of uh, the resource resources that it, it would therefore involve. So um, are, are, you, are you saying that, that uh, obviously we're talking about the UK, so we're talking about uh, a public a public health system rather than largely speaking yeah. rather than a private insurance health system so mm-hmm. are, are you saying that that here in the uk professionals are, are um on occasion not diagnosing fasd because they're worried that it, it it's going to cause put, put it boldly yeah. budgets to be spent well at, i, th- at I think certainly that that was the case. I mean, I think more and more you're seeing diagnoses coming forward, um, which is great. And there are now more and more support networks out there to, to, to assist families. Um, but when you look at, at the children who come forward for adoption, yes, you know, there's a range of reasons why children have a plan of adoption. Um, but the one that, that, that more and more comes to the fore is some level of alcohol abuse or drug abuse during pregnancy manifesting the problems in later life. And so it's important that we prepare people for that, but we still need families who are able to actually care for these children. So it's a balancing act when we're preparing families so that they don't get scared off as it were, but what's not developing in tandem or the support services there and the recognition that this is a, this is a big problem. Um, And because it often doesn't manifest itself for several years, then people minimise it, you know, at the time of birth, really, because it, it's putting off a problem for later. Um, and so I think way back, you know, several years ago, there would have been stronger evidence, really, that there was a reluctance to give. It was a, it was seen as a new fad, a new fashion, a new uh, concept, much in the way that children who were diagnosed with autism, ADHD, etc., you, you know, there, there were new concepts and way back there was a struggle then to get a diagnosis and the right resources available for families and it's a similar thing I think with fetal alcohol because there are so many children certainly in the care system who will have been affected by this situation that it's not rocket science to believe that it would be costly if you resource it and diagnose it and so on so you know it's not an accusatory statement from me it's just I think a reality really that it's possibly been the lid's been kept on it a little bit because the fear would be that if if we really go down this route, how on earth yeah. will we support it? The expectations will be raised, etc. And we just haven't got the funding to do so. So I think that was the early fear. Um, probably it's fair to say that things have moved forward because there are now a lot more people or fair with it. Uh, a lot more people who are out there um, wanting to, to to do their bit to try and get the right resources and so on, support networks and so on. So I think it's being recognised more and more, but I think certainly in the early days, that was that was one of the problems really. So families who were dealing with children where there wasn't a diagnosis just didn't know what they were dealing with really. Um, I think the, the reality check is really important because, um, I, you know, when you said that to me before I started recording, I was, I was really taken aback. Um, couple of couple of things on FSD so if you're uh, if you've not listened to the episodes with uh, Robbie Seal and uh, Natalie uh, Vecchione um they are in they are th- th- these are you know adopted ones um uh, one in Canada one in the states who's uh have who, whose kids have got this FSD um powerful issues pa- sorry par- powerful learnings from those yeah. two uh, great, uh, great, great women. Check those out in the back catalogue of the Thriving Adopters podcast if you've not already done so. Um, are there any other kind of like? Sorry, it came as a shock to me when you said a reality check. Well, people and the people used to be, you know, they were diagnosing late. I had the same. I, I actually, I think I've remembered somebody was telling me about that. That this is uh, this was about probably 12, 15 years ago. Uh, somebody who was close to the uh, the NHS um, was saying this about cancer diagnosis. Can you know it? It was mm. 
unwritten rule or policy to diagnose late. And I remember being completely horrified by that. Um, but that is the reality. Um, are there any other kind of, I mean, this is a really broad question, but I, I, I don't know what I don't know. So are there any other kind of like reality check things that, that you know, that people, adoptive parents may not be aware of? I mean, it, it sounds such a, it sounds such a big question. I'm, I'm, hesitate, I'm hesitating to ask it. Do you know where I'm coming from, though? I, I do. I mean, are you thinking health-related particularly? I'm, or I'm, I'm, thinking anything, anything. I'm thinking anything. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing that sprung to mind, which is a complete departure from, from health issues, but and we have vaguely touched on the concept of contact. But I think, you know, adopters are often led by what the workers involved with the child would say is the appropriate level of contact. And traditionally, uh, once contact became a concept that within adoption, it was what we call the postbox contact system in England and in the UK. And it's very minimal. You know, in most cases, it's an annual exchange indirectly, an annual exchange of uh, letters or photographs on occasions, etc. And and then people believe that that's appropriate because they're not in a position to question adopters. Workers kind of minimize its importance because they don't really know either how important it is. But but now, we, you know, we know from the work that's been done in terms of lifelong identity, mental health issues, if those that are touched by adoption, whether it be birth parents or adoptees, that contact is important and it should be unique to every child. And there might be overlap and that several children have the same plan, but it shouldn't be just a one size fits all and an assumption that annual contact is right for every child it could be more than that not less than that yeah. um and i think that that's something that i would love for doctors to be open to really to to consider what is right for their child and not to be fearful of contact you know yes we know with we know the backstory there might be situations where high levels of contact can create levels of danger and so you wouldn't go down that route i'm not advocating that at all but i think you would like people to be open to explore, well, what is right for my child and to be comfortable with that and confident about that and not fear that it will undermine their relationship because the evidence is there that if anything, it's the opposite that happens. Um, that if children as adults grow up and see the openness of their adoptive family and the acceptance of the adoptive family of that child's origin, um, then then that's a powerful message, you know, that they're accepting them fully as well. And so it's a bit like driving into a skid for adopters. I understand that. You know, we're told that if you feel that your car's going out of control, you drive towards the skid. It doesn't feel like the right thing to do. The natural order of things would be you drive away from it and then create bigger problems. Yeah. And I think contact is very much like that, that people are fearful of it. Workers take the least path of resistance often with it because it becomes more complicated to set up complex arrangements, to go out and visit all the parties involved in that. And so minimal lip service is often paid to contact. And it's also defined at a time when relationships are a bit fraught as well. You know that you are writing child's permanence reports, which are the reports that ultimately lead to an adoption plan at a time when you're in the middle of legal proceedings and you're at variance with the birth family, there's um, legal representation on both parties and so on. So, and, and you form a judgment at that point about how able a birth parent is to maintain contact, how amenable and affable a birth parent is. And because they might be angry, it's seen that, well, maybe a contact's not appropriate. So it's almost like a further punishment, but the person who gets punished the most is the child in the middle of that, really. Yeah, and um, there is there is a there is a thread as as you were explain, uh, you're explaining that. Um, so uh, so wow, there's a there is a there is a thread between two things, and it's about authority, I think. Yeah. So we don't question the authority. You know, the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't yeah. it isn't um, um, forthcoming so and we don't question the authority mm -hmm. the um, 
the uh, the contact is set out in this in, in this minimal minimal fashion, and we don't question that. We do, we don't question the you know the authority or their expertise. Um, so I guess there's a there's a uh, the suggestion that I would have for the for the listener is, do I want to take a different look at at, at what I'm being told, and yeah. do I want to do? Am I going to accept? what I'm being told or you know in in my gut um do I feel that something would be more appropriate for, for my child so perhaps some questions to to uh to, to mull over for you listeners there um because you know you you know your child best Terry and I are just talking very big very big picture here um you do what you think is right in in your heart for your for your child and um uh, and that's uh, this um, this episode has been kind of tri- interview. It, it's been a bit. It it's been. It feels a little bit tricky because it it doesn't feel like. Well, it feels like we've been given more. We've given them been giving the listeners more to think about, mm-hmm. <laughs> more questions to ask themselves rather than answers. And people uh, and myself, you know, we're looking we're looking for answers, and I guess. The answer is in the, uh, the the frustrating thing sometimes is that the answer is within. We just gotta look within and mm. find out what's right for us. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, is are there anything else? That, is there anything else that you'd like to, to 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 finish with, Terry? Before we bring this in, it's just to very briefly share our, our um, development areas really at, at ARP, yeah. and and it, it links to to contact, but it links also to life story. Uh, lifelong identity and and the issues that are apparent within that and so what we've been privileged to be able to do at ARC is to develop a digital life story work platform um, and this tries to bring a contact up to this century really so that it can be whatever it needs to be so we started off the other way around we developed the life story work platform which um, allows children to actually use a, a social media platform really to um, record their f- thoughts and feelings to maintain a diary there's avatars for them to be whoever they want to be um, animated format there are photo galleries that can be maintained within this the system within the platform um, there are games um, there is the life story work itself that's there and and so we began to have discussions with the uh, Nuffield Family Justice Observatory in, in, in part of the Nuffield organization in, in this country who were doing research into contact and, and the digital world really and, and, and how it could be brought um, up to, to modern times. And so our discussions led us to rethink really the, the language we were using around um, both contact and life story and seeing that traditionally when professionals engage in these two topics they're seen as two separate entities where really we believe now that they're totally entwined a child's contact plan is part of their life story because life doesn't stop it continues and there's a lot of life to be lived with the new family the adoptive family so it's important that the language is appropriate as well and contact doesn't do it just to see either so we're starting to use the word communication so what we believe we've developed is a communication platform so it can house life story it can be there as a as a medium for children to utilize on a daily basis I mean we have children who like nothing more than to just add photographs that they've taken on a daily basis um, of their cat their dog the first day at school whatever it might be but they're there in a place that's convenient and so on if they wish to, they can go behind the scene and they can see further, they can see information and, and so on. All of this is controlled. Um, nothing inappropriate is passed through, but it ena- the system enables contributors, whether that be birth family members, social workers, nursery nurses, um, taxi drivers. In, in this country, we have a number of children who either get ferried to school or moved around for contact via a whole you know range of taxi drivers and yet and they can be very important people in the child's life and and often get those anecdotal things that are missed really and so a taxi driver could have a a, a link 
to be able to post something that might be really important and, and, and really something to celebrate. So the platform has opened up a number of opportunities here. And the latest development is, is an app which allows the traditional postbox contact system to be managed digitally because currently it's it's a very onerous manual process that's in many local authorities maintained on Excel spreadsheets and exponentially it grows every year. And you'd probably be designated one worker to manage that system. And you could have you know thousands of contact arrangements coming in in any one year. And it's just overwhelming really. And it becomes a minimal service really because of, because of that. And so it is kept to this once a year because just practically people couldn't manage any, any more. Whereas this tool allows contact to be at whatever level is deemed to be appropriate. Um, as children grow older and become young adults, then they can themselves um, dictate what level of contact communication they want with key people in their lives. Um, and it, it's just opening up those, those opportunities. But it's done in a way, I mean, one of the refreshing things is that some of the young people that have been using this system um, have not found the need to actually use Facebook or any other social media outlet and in the way that we might have expected given their age. And when questioned, what they say is that they quite like the fact that they can actually communicate with the people that they want to, they can message the people they want to, it can be controlled, but they don't have to be liked by anybody. You know, there's pressure on our young people to be liked. And, and although it's seen as a, a, a fun thing to do, it, we don't realise the pressure that children and young people are under to what, what's wrong with me? Nobody likes me on my Facebook page. And yet that, that can be a big issue. So these are some of the messages that children, and young people that we didn't expect have said to us that it it's also because it opens up the opportunity to have dialogue of whatever level with um, birth family members, it seems to be heading off at the past in some, certainly in, in the cases we're working with, and it, it, it is low numbers, I appreciate that at present, but it's heading off the, the need to actually be subversive, to go off and find family, birth family members through social media outlets such as Facebook and so on. So we are currently developing this app um, through working with the internet domain provider, Nominet, and as part of their social responsibility, they've provided us with some funding to look at how this platform can maintain safety on the internet for children who are in the care system. We're also turning it around to, to try and encourage local authorities to start these processes with children as soon as they come in the care system, not just when they have a plan of adoption. So it's it's an exciting time for us as an organisation, really, and it's probably fair to say watch this space because it is in development. Um, the Life Story Work platform's up and running, um, and we have a, a, a number of local authorities who use that, but the we're just at the point of going into a pilot with the contact app and um, you know, hopefully we'll have more news in the future really about that. So uh, this this is, uh, so if adoptive parents are in the UK, yeah. um, then they need to speak to their local authority about getting access to this Life Story app. Is that, is yeah, that it's, uh, you know, not every local authority is on board with it, but at least if, if people are lobbying for them to at least look at it, you know, it, it, um, then that would help. Certainly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if you if if this is something that is interest to speak to your local authority about authority about it as soon as I say that I think what it's like trying to get through those switchboards, um, yeah. you know. Um, so uh, if you don't uh, if, if you don't um, get anywhere with that, then um, are they welcome to get in touch with you, Terry? To to they can to, you know we can about. talk about in more detail what it entails and 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 what can be gained from it and uh, which gives you know greater strength when people are either lobbying or, or, or requesting an opportunity the more people we have on board with it then it reduces costs so we want to get to a position where people could um have access to it as an individual rather than presently it, it, because of storage costs and we work with a, a digital provider as well and uh, and there are costs inherent for us in that um so the more customers we for want of a better phrase we have then it can become more cost effective and, and open the door really for individuals to, to maintain that um, and to have links with it. Whereas presently it would be cost prohibitive, I think, for an individual to, to do it. But that's the direction of travel. We don't want it to be expensive. We, you know, it's, um, we're a not-for-profit organization, so we just want people to benefit from it. Um, Fantastic. 
So um, there'll be links to to Terry's website uh, in the show notes. So get in uh, get in touch if this uh, life story work is something that you're interested in looking at, or the uh, the contact app going forward. So thank you very much for your time, Terry. It's been a great oh, conversation. Thank you. And uh, apologise if I've gone off uh, the tangent many a time, but um, I can I can talk for England literally, Simon. So yeah. you've done well to curtail things. You and me both, buddy. Great to <laughs> great to speak with you, and thanks for listening. Okay. Uh, see you see you again soon, listeners. Bye bye.